All right, uh, if you would, open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Um, we're continuing our series through uh, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, or seeing Jesus in all Scripture. And uh, Exodus 12 is actually one of the most significant events in all the Bible, and also therefore in all of world history. And um, and one of the things that the Old Testament does is that it's constantly telling the people of God to remember what happened. And uh, there's a reason for that, because the, the salvation that would come to us in Jesus Christ um, would be a greater picture of this Exodus. So Exodus chapter 12 um, we're going to start in verse 1 and read to, to verse 14 and then pick up in verse 29. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your, uh, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Uh, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, uh, get to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had done also as Moses told them, and for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude, talking about uh, Egyptians with them too. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened bread cakes of the dough that they had brought up out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, and it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that even with technology, we're able to do this on a, uh, on a snowy night. And Father, we ask that as we continue to look at your word and as you show us uh, your truth, as you show us your son, uh, even long before he came to this earth, that we would learn how to read your word better. And as we learn how to read your word better, that it would enrich us and it will help us understand the riches of your gospel more and more. And that, and at the end of that, we would become more like him. And so Lord, I do thank you for this. Thank you for the students gathered here tonight, bring conversion even through this and bring sanctification. And uh, we thank you. And we ask all this Lord Jesus in your name. Amen. Uh, One of the things we learn about social media and the news is that essentially social media and the news, they are, at the end of the day, they're storytellers. Um, they're always trying to tell us stories from kind of the weird uh, fragrance commercials all the way to uh, six to ten second TikTok videos. Everything's trying to tell us a story. And one of the biggest stories that social media and the news is telling us today is that we need to cover up our flaws. We need to cover up our flaws. And what we do is when we see our flaws, when we see our weaknesses, when we see our sins, we don't need to let anyone else see them because if they see them, then they'll reject us or they'll abandon us. And that's often the fear that really drives us. And one of the ways in which we, kind of in a funny way, how we can see us trying to cover up our flaws, here's one way we do it. Uh, even the way in which we take selfies, the angle of the phone in such a way where it makes our bodies look more sexy uh, than if they just saw a normal picture of us. We love to take pictures in such a way that make us look more beautiful, more handsome, uh, as possible as we could be, because we're constantly trying to cover up our flaws. But here's the thing that we learn, is that when we read the scriptures, We do see we have flaws. We do see we have weaknesses. We do see we have sins. And we can never hide them from God. There's no way to hide them from God because he sees all things. He knows all things. And that actually is also a very scary thing. 
And the question that comes up is this, is there a way to find a covering? Is there any deliverance from being enslaved to this life of us constantly trying to uh, be spiritual tailors, as it were, and just to make our own clothing? But what this text shows us tonight is that there is a way to find a covering. And as we could say, and I guess if you can put it in a kind of a memorable way, but the cover story of your life should be that your life is covered by the blood. The cover story of your life should be that your life is covered by the blood. Really, this whole chapter, we're kind of taking it all together, just want to read most of it. This whole chapter can really boil down to three different uh, truths here. First off, the first truth is that sinful people need a covering. The second truth is that sinful people need a delivering. And the third truth is that sinful people need a remembering. A covering, a delivering, and a remembering. So look back at verse 1. You see what happens there? And uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. And in verse 5, he says, here's why. You're going to take a lamb and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Imagine that you're an Israelite. Imagine that you're a 20-year-old male or female Israelite and you've been living in Egypt. And as you've been living in Egypt, all that you have known, all that your parents have known, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and even probably your great-great-grandparents, all y'all have known is a life of bondage, a life of very intense slavery, and intense slavery under the superpower of the world during that time of Egypt. And specifically, the the ruler of Egypt who was Pharaoh. They were the superpower in that world and no one dared to touch them. For so long, for 430 years, you've been in slavery. And as you live your life in Egypt and as you go about carrying these large stones and bricks on your back as you help build these pyramids or build these statues to their gods, you're reminded that the Egyptian gods, such as the god Ra, who's the sun god, the god Happy, who's the god of the Nile River, or the goddess Hecate, who is the goddess of fertility. And those gods and many other gods were the, the ones who would empower uh, Egypt. And it seemed like their gods were the true gods who were ruling but you've, you've heard about this God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you just wonder, where is he? Because it seems as if he's dead. And haven't we all been in those types of situations where it just seems as if the gods of the world are living and our God is not? But then as an Israelite, something very, very strange happens to you. And imagine this. You've heard about this man named Moses who several years ago killed an Egyptian, and then ran out of the land to seek refuge elsewhere. And you maybe you've, as an Israelite, you long for that same life. You long when you can get away from slavery as well. But then the strangest event happens. This guy, Moses, returns. But here's something that's interesting. When he returns, he brings with him a message. And he says this, he has the audacity to say that the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
has sent him to, to deliver you, to deliver all the Israelites out of Egypt. And then these strange events begin to happen. Moses goes to the Nile River and he takes the staff that God had given him. And he takes the staff and he strikes the Nile River and something, something so strange happened. The river turned to blood. And when the river turned to blood, it essentially was showing that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had just killed Happy, the God of the Nile River. Happy was supposed to use the Nile River to supply life in abundance to the people of Egypt through the Nile River. But now the Nile River had turned to blood. And what was it showing? It was showing that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has just defeated Happy. And then something crazier happens right after that. Later on, there's a plague, uh, the second, actually the very next plague that happens. And these frogs come out of nowhere. And they get everywhere. They even get into Pharaoh's bedroom. And these frogs represent the goddess of fertility, Hecate. Because Hecate was a goddess who had the head of a frog. And one day, after these frogs have gotten literally everywhere, in your bed, in your closet, they're they're all in your clothes, they're literally everywhere. And then all of a sudden, they all die. Well, what does that show? (laughs) That shows that Yahweh has not only defeated Happy, he's also defeated Hecate. And all these these other plagues start happening, happening. Six other plagues are happening and God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is starting to kill all the Egyptian gods. And then there comes the ninth plague. The ninth plague that happens earlier in the book of Exodus, actually in chapter 10 at the end, is the plague of darkness. And at the time of noon, when the sun is supposed to be at its highest, when the sun is supposed to be shining brightest, In the land of Egypt and not in the land of where the Israelites are living, there is complete and utter darkness. Darkness so great, it actually says that the darkness could be felt, it says in chapter 10, verse 21. And it was a darkness that showed that God had killed Ra. What God was doing in the 10 plagues is that he wasn't just simply doing miracles, He was exposing the Egyptian gods as simply being not gods at all. And then comes the tenth plague. Moses brings his final warning. And he tells Pharaoh that, look, there's going to be a Passover. And what's going to happen is that all the firstborn of every single household will die. Moses makes the announcement and he says clearly here in chapter 12 that there is a way out. And the way out is by taking a spotless, blameless lamb and killing it. Now, why would that have to happen? You see, the Egyptians and the Israelites were sinners. Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Sin deserves death. It's not a, just a neutral thing. It's not even from the smallest thought, the smallest desire. It's not just something that God can look over. God being holy, he, he has to be just. He has to be against sin. And God cannot dwell in the presence of sinners without a sacrifice. And so God says, look, 
I am passing over you in my wrath. And I deserve, and you, or excuse me, you deserve to have your firstborn taken from you, but there's a way out, and there's a way I'll show mercy to you. As if you sacrifice a blameless, spotless lamb. Imagine taking those lambs, thousands of lambs taken, spotless, blameless lambs. And on one night, you have to slaughter them all. And imagine the stench that you would smell. And as you would watch everyone take the hyssop branches and they would dip the branches into that blood and they would paint their doorposts with the blood over top. I love what one person says, that the Lord, when he passed over and he saw the blood, he did not check to see if anyone were inside the house, if they were worthy of being saved. Rather, he checked to see if there was blood on the doorpost. None of us is worthy. Only the blood of Jesus can cover us. And that's exactly what Jesus recognizes as he reads this text too. Imagine Jesus as a 20-year-old. Because Jesus himself would have to grow in his knowledge of understanding who he was in his life on this earth. Yes, he is God in the flesh, but he still has to grow just like any other human being would grow. And Jesus would have been reading the Old Testament And imagine, imagine what would happen when he would have read this text. He would have read it and he would have realized all these lambs, everything for over a thousand years has been leading up to me. All these other sacrifices for all these sinners and all their sins were merely a placeholder for me. Even Jesus' own cousin says and. John 2, verse 36, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking, and imagine what Jesus would have thought when he heard this. And imagine what the people around him would have thought when they heard this. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He is who it is ultimately leading to. Jesus would be the one who is truly blameless, truly spotless, truly without blemish. And he would have his blood spilt for us on the cross to save us from the wrath of God, to cover us. Not because we're worthy, but because the blood is a sign to the Lord that he can have mercy on us. And there's two things that happen on the cross. Two things that what we believe happens for us to be saved. It's not only these two things, but these are two of the bigger ones. It's expiation and propitiation expiation and propitiation, and they go together. Expiation means that Jesus covers us uh, in our sins. He covers us from the wrath of God, and he absorbs the wrath of God on himself so that we might be saved. It It is like the picture of having an umbrella that covers you from every raindrop that would come down upon you. Jesus takes all of the which you could say the raindrops of the wrath of God so that you don't have any of it on you. That's what expiation is. But there's also propitiation. Propitiation is not only that Jesus covers us, but that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. That when God looks at Jesus, and after Jesus has taken the wrath of God on the cross, when Jesus says in John nineteen thirty, it is finished, the question is, what is finished? Jesus has taken the full wrath of God for our sins. That's propitiation. It means that 
Jesus is enough to cover us. It means that God is satisfied and we don't need any more punishment for our sins, that Jesus is absolutely enough. And I love what happened in Thursday uh, Thursday night freshman Bible study last week. Stella, uh, shout out Stella, what up? Um, Stella made a really good illustration and she was talking about how because of the gospel, it's as if God now puts on these grace glasses. And as he looks through those glasses, he sees through the lens of Jesus Christ. He sees through the lens of grace. If, if you're a Christian, God looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and it affects everything in your life, just how glasses would affect everything you see. That's what Jesus does for us. But if we're honest... We don't always live in light of this story, do we? We often live and we functionally don't trust that we're really covered by the blood or we live as if we still need further punishment for our sins. And here's some ways in which we live. Well, the first way is simply with perfectionism and busyness. In perfectionism, we... We try to live life in such a way where we try to perfect everything in our life so that we can look good for other people. And we want to use that to, to cover up our faults and to act like we're better than what we really are. And we're thinking that if I can just cover up these weaknesses and just look on the outside like I'm perfect, then I'll be accepted. We do that also in busyness and we just do the same thing where we just try to look busy in front of everyone else so that people will not think about our weaknesses or not think about our sins. They can think, well, there's someone to admire because they're just busy. People value their time. But we also don't trust the covering of Jesus simply when we go through what I like to call mental murder. We have the thought of, well, I know what I've done. Or I know what's happened to me and I know how sinful I am or or how unclean I am. And so I, I just can't forgive myself and I need to just mentally murder myself and just punish myself and never let it go. There's a third way we live by not trusting Jesus that he's enough is that we, and I've seen this and this is hard, but we do things like self harm and cutting. We, we harm ourselves thinking that we need to take more and more punishment for our sins or even we, we, we hit ourselves, we cut ourselves, we do things to harm ourselves thinking that Jesus is not quite enough for me. But there's also another one that is actually really serious and it's, it's hard to talk about often. But this one is true. And one of the big things is eating disorders. Now, to be sure, there are many different factors that, that contribute to an eating disorder. So please hear me there. But one of the main factors, this isn't the solve it all. This isn't like pop these two Advil and you'll be fine. But one of the main factors in this is that people who often struggle with an eating disorder, it's very hard for them to rest in the fact that Jesus is enough. And maybe you struggle with an eating disorder because there's been some very intense trauma in your past. Maybe there's a past sin that you can't let go of and you you try to punish yourself. You, You starve yourself or you make yourself eat so much and then vomit it all out. Or or maybe you you 
you feel just out of control in life. Or one of the things is that you, you just can't stand this event that has happened to you. And so you try to do anything you can to make your body look a certain way so that then people won't see that weakness about you, but they can just see your outward beauty. And the hard thing about an eating disorder is that every single day you have to look at your food and it just reminds you of your struggle. It reminds you of your sin. It reminds you of your suffering. And the hardest thing to do in those moments is to remember that Jesus covers you. Here's what I long for you to remember if you struggle with this. Jesus is enough. He really does cover you. He does not want you to keep punishing yourself. He does not want you to think that somehow you're not covered completely. He is enough and he knows how to minister to you even amidst that struggle. I do love what John Newton says. When we burden ourselves with our many sins, we are prone to overlook the very greatest of them, unbelief. What John Newton is saying is that Yes, we do sin by doing many, many different things. But our greatest sin is something that we don't do. Believe. One of the things we need to do is make sure we believe that Jesus is enough for us. John Carpenter was, uh, he was the first man to win Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And when he got to the million dollar question, he hadn't used any lifelines. He gets to the final question and and they ask him this question about which of these presidents appeared on this TV show. And and he says, I'd like to use my lifeline and I'd like to call my dad. So he calls his dad and he says this, hey, dad, I don't really need your help, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to win the million dollars. Now that right there, (laughs) that right there is a bold move. He hasn't even answered the question yet. Well, he answers the question, he's correct, and he wins a million dollars, and it's kind of a legendary story. But here's one of the things we can learn from that. Jesus does not need our help. He doesn't need us to add to his work. He doesn't need us to try to add to the covering that he's given us. He is enough. He's enough for our forgiveness. He's enough to cover our shame. He's enough to cleanse us of our sins. He is enough to take the wrath of God. Listen, it is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Jesus is enough. And the cover story of your life should be that your life is covered by the blood. Sinful people need a covering. And sinful people also need a delivering. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Um, You see there in verse 32 where Pharaoh tells Moses, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Matter of fact, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to leave them. You see in verse 40, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Imagine you're an Israelite again. And I do want you to imagine the scene. It's very quiet. It's an eerie night. 
And you're hoping and praying that the blood over the doorpost is enough, that it's that it and it alone has met God's requirement. And you hear in the background, you hear in the distance, these faint screams. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And it's an unmistakable sound. It's the sound of, of utter pain. And you know what's happening. That God is coming down with his wrath upon sinners. But yet, then you begin to hear another noise. You begin to hear commotion around you, kind of in your neighborhood, as it were. People are getting up. People are beginning to talk. And they're beginning to hear voices that say, get your stuff and get out. You begin to realize as an Israelite, God has had utter mercy, utter grace upon you, even though you deserve his wrath. But now, by the sacrifice of the lamb, you have been delivered from bondage. And you begin to gather your stuff and you begin to to grab your unleavened bread dough and, and you start getting out and even the Egyptians start giving you some of their possessions just to get you out of there. Here's what has just happened. After 430 years, you have been freed. God has won. He has defeated the world superpower of the day. He's defeated Pharaoh. And God brings you into freedom. You see, that's exactly what happens in the Christian life. Sin keeps us in bondage. And when God saves us, he delivers us from a very bad, horrible taskmaster to him being our master. But he, as our master, he's good. He's compassionate. He's patient. He's loving. And he'll never leave us. Sin is bondage. Sin is slavery. Sin is tyranny. Sin is also this. Sin is addiction. Sin makes us all addicts. Sin has a, excuse me, sin has an addictive habit to it. And oftentimes when we think about addictions, we only think about the big ones. But sin in and of itself is addictive and we crave it because it makes these false promises to us. But whenever we indulge in it, it never lives up to it. Well, we have many addictions in our life, some of them bigger, some of them smaller, but think about some of these. Addictions to alcohol, addictions to love, addictions to sleep, to pain, to technology or gambling or sex or a sexual lifestyle, even addictions to caffeine and pornography and food, work, marijuana, painkillers, social media, even an addiction to respect. And one of the things that what we do is we look at these things and we say, be God to me. And I love what g Easy says. Yes, I am quoting g Easy in his song, Nostalgia Cycle. Because he actually explains something that's very similar to okay, what an addiction would feel like. And listen to what he says. I miss the way I felt when I had no regrets. The way the drugs would feel when they were hard to get. The problem is simple, nostalgia cycle. My mind is in a fight against the time that I have left. Listen to this other stanza. I miss the way that I felt when I had no regrets before I lost myself in so much random sex. Sleeping with strangers, ignoring the dangers, scribble my past out, I scrubbed these erasers. What g is saying there is this, is that he's tried to get that joy back again. 
But every time he tries to pursue things like drugs or sex, it leaves him feeling more and more empty, but he still tries to get it more and more. That's an addiction. And one of the things in our addictions is that we often say this, I have it under control. But here's the thing about addictions. It has you under its control. That's what sin does. We never have sin under our control. Sin has us under its control. But finally, finally when we begin to realize that we need help, that's when Ed Welch says the addicts begin to feel as if they are really trapped and out of control. And that's what sin does to us. Sin makes us feel like Paul says in Romans 7 verse 23, even Christians, I mean, Paul's a Christian saying this, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, as an unbeliever, you are addicted to your sin and it takes many different forms, sometimes real, official, formal addictions. And as an as a, as a, uh, that's for the unbeliever, but for the believer. For the believer, when you come to Jesus, you still struggle with sin, sometimes even real addictions. And it feels as if these two kingdoms are waging war within you. And sometimes you feel as if I want to follow the Lord, but it's so difficult because sin is so enticing. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. That's what happened on the cross. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall have no more dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. John 8.36, Jesus says, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Dear Christian, here's one of the things I want you to know. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There is nothing too hard for him to do in your life. The, the most addictive sin you have in your life, the most difficult sin to overcome in your life, Jesus has a greater power and he will deliver you. It might take a lot of time, but he will do it. Slowly but surely looking to Jesus, watching him work, I just beg you, keep looking to Jesus and he will deliver you. When the cover story of your life is that your life is covered by the blood, Watch and see what Jesus does. He will deliver you. Sinful people need a covering. Sinful people need a delivering. Sinful people need a remembering. Look at verse 14. You see that. One of the big things is that the Lord said, not just that you shall do this with the lamb, but also this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. The Passover feast is what the people of Israel would celebrate every single year. And why would they do that? Because it's very easy to forget big truths. We know that. It's very easy to forget the gospel. It's very easy to forget what Jesus has done for us. And God knows that we need regular things to help us remember the truth. And so God set in place the Passover feast for the Israelites to remember this. You need a sacrifice for your sins. You need a greater lamb of God to save you. And that's what they would look forward to for over a thousand years. And now what do we do? We look back on the true lamb of God. We look back on him and we see that 
He is enough to cover us. And as we remember that, it becomes our identity. It becomes our story. It becomes what we have feast about. I love what this one recent study uh, has showed us, and maybe some of you have heard me talk about this, but there's a recent psychological study that's come out saying that when you watch some of your favorite movies over and over or you read some of your favorite books over and over, it can often help with anxiety. And they say that because... Well, when you read that book over and over, or you watch that movie over and over, well, you already know the story. You already know the outcome. You already know that Harry Potter will defeat Voldemort no matter how dark it gets. You already know that Frodo is going to destroy the ring even though it seems like an impossible journey. And you also know that Lego Batman, he will learn to love. See, we love... We love these stories because actually this is how we've been made. We've been made to be a people who rehearse the important stories in our life because it helps us to live. This is how God made us, to be a people who would constantly remember the gospel over and over and over. And that's what we do when uh, Hebrews 10 verse 12 says this. We remember the story of Jesus. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We work on more and more to remember what Jesus has done. We remember the Lamb of God. Think about this. When you're driving, maybe not tonight, uh, but when you're driving, one of the things you do, especially when you get on the interstate, and if you're in traffic, you often look in your rearview mirror to see like if someone's tailgating you, right? Or maybe you look to see, is there a cop back there? But here's one of the things that happens. When you look too much in your rearview mirror, it's very hard to navigate what's in front of you. And when you just keep looking in your rearview mirror and you don't look at what's in front of you, you actually don't drive very well. Well, isn't that a very good analogy for the Christian life? When we constantly look in the past and we constantly only think about the bad things that have happened to us or the sins that we have done, rather than looking to Jesus, we don't live very well, do we? But the Christian life is meant to look at Jesus knowing that he has handled everything in the past and he is working on us moving forward. It's not easy. But the more we look to Jesus the more we're able to live a better life. You see, we need to remember God. We need to remember what he's done. And we're not going to remember that if we just keep trying to keep up this busyness life or this technology and entertainment addiction where we spend all of our time doing that, but never any time remembering. See, this is why we have corporate worship. We have corporate worship and we have the preaching of the word. And this is why we have preach, the preaching of the word even when we still try to do a Zoom session on snow nights. We have the preaching of the word and the Lord's Supper and baptism and things like confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Why? Because it reminds us of what's true. It reminds us we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. This is also why we have things in our calendar like Christmas, Easter, but even each week, this is why we have the Sabbath. This is why we have the Lord's Day on Sunday, 
Because every week we remember what's true. This is why we do small groups in RUF. This is why we have Bible studies, because we know in, in a community of believers, we need to be reminded of what's true, of what the gospel is. This is why we have one-on-ones and we promote one-on-ones in RUF, one-on-ones with each other, but even one-on-ones with your pastor, where you can come to your pastor and you can even confess your sins. And I can remind you that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. That's amazing because we struggle to forget. We struggle to remember that. And we need, we need help with counseling, good, solid biblical counseling where we can grow in Christ. It's why we have things like our own private scripture reading and prayer and learning to preach the gospel to ourselves. Why do we do it? Because it's hard to remember. And we need to remember that the cover story of our lives is the story that our life is covered by the blood. The cover story of your life is the story that your life is covered by the blood. There's a classic short story called The Necklace. Maybe some of you have read it in school, <laughs> but it's this great story about a woman who is beautiful, but she lived in poverty. And she was very bitter about her life, and she didn't like her life circumstances, and she just dreamed about what it would be like had she married rich. Well, finally, one day she gets an invitation to a, a very nice ball, and she decides to get a really nice dress. And she figures out how to, how to put up her, her hair. And she realizes that this is going to be the opportunity of a lifetime. But one thing's missing. A really nice piece of jewelry. Well, she hears about a woman who, who has a lot of jewelry. And so she asks if she can borrow some. And, and as she's looking through this woman's jewelry, she comes across a black uh, velvet box. She opens the box and sees the most magnificent necklace she's ever seen. She asks if she can borrow it, and the lady lets her. And so she puts this thing on, and she looks absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. She looks like among all these rich people, she looks like she belongs there. She goes to the ball. She has the best time of her life. She leaves. And then she notices that her neck is naked. She's lost the necklace. She tries looking for it, but she can't find it. And when she gets home, her and her husband come up with a plan. Here's the plan. They're going to gather thousands of dollars. They're going to ask so many people if they can borrow money. They're going to take out loans, and they'll pay them back later, even if it takes 10 years. But they're going to not ask for forgiveness. They're going to borrow all this money, and they're going to go buy a replica that looks just like it. And they go buy the replica, and they give it back to this woman, and she doesn't even notice. Well, 10 years goes by, and this woman comes across her friend. Her friend can hardly recognize her because over 10 years, her life has been so hard, and it's aged her very badly. She's had two jobs, her and her husband, and they're just trying all they can to pay off their debt. And the woman blames her friend for it. And she says, you're the reason why my life has been so hard. You should have never let me borrow that necklace. I had to go and, and replace it with a replica that was thousands and thousands of dollars. Here's what her friend responded with. Well, my necklace that I let you borrow was a fake the whole time. And all you needed to do is ask for forgiveness. Isn't that what we do with Jesus? Jesus. 
We try so hard to cover ourselves up. We work so hard in trying to cover up our sins. We work so hard in trying to punish ourselves for our sins. But Jesus is saying this, I'm enough. Stop trying to cover yourself up. Stop trying to beat yourself up. Look at me. I am enough. And this is what it means to be a community of believers. We're not sinless. We sin against each other all the time. But what we do, even in our sins, that we look at each other and we remind each other that Jesus is enough and we believe in grace. And if you're not a believer, you can have that, but you can only have it by coming to Jesus Christ. He is who can cover you. He is who can deliver you. And when you remember that, when you remember that cover story, it'll forever change your life. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have the Passover lamb. We have the blood that saves us, not because we're worthy. Because all we deserve is your wrath and your judgment upon our sins. But we thank you that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Help us to trust that his covering is enough. And that he satisfied your wrath and that we have your love and your blessing and your compassion. Help us to remember that with each other as well. And Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen.